With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. SB Nation and Underdog Dynasty present the Underdog Podcast. Welcome back to the Underdog Podcast, CUSA edition on UnderdogDynasty.com, SB Nation's home for the Group of Five and the FCS. Hope you all had a marvelous weekend, and it's hard to believe that we're already in week six of the college football season. We're getting closer and closer to the end. I don't want to think about it, but that's all I can think about right now. Uh, Joe Londrigan, Eric Henry here with you, as always. Excited to dive into the action that we saw in CUSA this past weekend and that includes a big win for UTSA uh, on their home turf against Western Kentucky, a rematch of the CUSA championship, obviously, and UTSA, once again, best in the Hilltoppers. And we're going to talk about that in a little bit with Greg Luca from the Express News in San Antonio. Um, Eric, I know we're excited to dive into that, excited to bring Greg on, excited to dive into the rest of CUSA action. But first... <laughs> you know, I've, we've made the joke about you being my work spouse, so I feel the obligation to ask, how was your day? Thank you, Joe. That's nice of you. I, I you know, a lot of times you, you kind of just bypass that, you know, but I, I do appreciate <laughs> you asking. I'm kidding. You never bypass that. You're always concerned about how things are going here in the Sunshine State. Uh, it's, a, it's a case of the Mondays. You know, I think you and I were talking off air about kind of struggling to make it through, like find that urge to take a nap, um, which... I guess, you know, before we jump into things, it was a it was a small week, you know, only four games, eight teams in a conference, or excuse me, seven teams in conference USA played. So we got a got a little bit of time, a little bit of <laughs> clear it's a case of the Mondays, a little bit of time here. Joe, what's your philosophy on midday naps? Are you a you nap guy? Oh, I'm a big proponent of naps. If I if I have, you know, an hour in between meetings and I don't have anything pressing that I need to get done, absolutely getting some shut eye, cuddling up with the dog, the whole deal. See, here's the thing with me, right? As someone who is notoriously a horrible sleeper at night, mm-hmm. uh, I almost people cannot shut my brain off. I, I, I'm inevitably, you know, like I have, I, what do they call that? Like bedroom hygiene or sleep, sleep, you know, like where you're supposed to turn off your lights and make sure you, you don't have, you know, your phone on and all that stuff. Like I'm horrible at that. Yeah. Um, but my brain is always running. So I try to avoid the naps so that when I get into bed, I'm just like ready to pass out. Um, but I envy you people who can take the naps most definitely. Um, speaking of kind of the relationship thing, Joe, I, I did want to run another <laughs> off air conversation by you or by our audience. Uh, we obviously had the conversation. Uh, I made a, a, a comment earlier, uh, as we were prepping for this call uh-huh. that, you know, uh, your, your lovely wife, Samantha added me on Instagram and, uh, in like the first two rows of pictures, she's a adorable picture of her as a ute, a young ute. Uh, uh, I jit. <laughs> so, oh, there we go. Yeah, I forgot. You, you, you spent time in Florida as a jit um, yeah. <laughs> in her soccer uniform. And it caught my eye because like I had a sort of similar soccer uniform. Maybe I will send this picture uh, to you so you can get the visual. So you can do like a comparison as a kid. Um, and I asked you if you'd seen the picture and you kind of like, oh, maybe. And, and I I was a little surprised, not the right word, but I guess I was like, huh, you know, is that something that, you know, married people don't like keep on those things? And and you responded in, you know, great fashion. I'll say it's one of the best lines since I've known you. You're like, yeah, dude, we're, we're married. I'm not creeping our Instagram anymore at this point. Like I'm going to see. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I mean, yeah, I don't know. As a, you don't have to you know, Instagram stalk your, your spouse in order to learn more about her. I think I've learned just about, <laughs> just about everything in a good way. Um, but that being said, it doesn't change the fact that every once in a while, and you know, those in relationships, I'm sure can, uh, <laughs> relate to this every once in a while you get the, did you even like my post today? And it's like, well, <laughs> uh, sure. I, I liked it. I'm telling you, I liked it. It's a great, it was great. Good job, honey. Like, <laughs> But 
I don't make I don't make a habit of just like going all the way back and like going through like people's old posts, whether I'm married to them or not. <laughs> um, but I don't know. That's that's one thing. And also, I think that's a weird thing with like the Instagram algorithm or whatever is like it shows you old stuff now. Like it's not really in chronological order unless you make right. it. So every once in a while, it's like you say so, like you you'll say to somebody like, oh, I, I saw that, you know, thing you posted on vacation or whatever. And you're like, that was like three months ago. And it's like, well, now I feel stupid. <laughs> All right. So this is what I want to do. I want to throw it out to the audience for the married folks, uh-huh. you know, relationship folks, whatever. Do you still check your significant other spouses like social media? You know, like if, if they post something on Facebook, are you like looking or is it, yeah, whatever. I'm, I'm going to hear about it in a couple hours. Anyhow, we'll revisit this on next pod. Hit us up. You know, we, you know how to find us on Twitter. So that aside, <laughs> we will get to football. Yes, I will say I bet that for most couples, it's one person is one way and the other person's not. One person is religiously checking the other person's social media and the other person hasn't used their social media for anything other than like work <laughs> in months. <laughs> yeah, let's dive into football. First, UAB getting a monster win over MTSU, 41 to 14 in their homecoming game. Also cool that they do the annual gesture for Children's Harbor, wearing those patients' names on their back. Uh, So awesome job by Brian Vincent and co. doing that. And great job by Dwayne McBride. Once again, another stellar game for him. I believe he's had three 100-yard rushing games in a row, uh, 12 carries for 120 yards in this one, uh, 10 yards per carry if you can't do the math, and three touchdowns. And he's actually top 10 in the FBS in rushing yards at the moment uh, with 641 yards on 87 carries. Eric, everybody else in the top 10 has played like two more games and has at least 110 carries. So that just shows you what kind of uh, what kind of season he's having. So instant reaction from what you were able to catch of this game. Joe, I'm going to piggyback off what you said about Dwayne McBride. That's one of those things that not that I ever doubted, like, oh, he's going to be a talented player and whatnot. But when you look at his numbers as a freshman, right, when he backed up Spencer Brown, he had something like seven, eight yards of carry. And you're like, all right, you know, he's coming and he's getting the, the RB2 reps, right? You know, he's getting the reps in, in the fourth quarter or he's getting the reps when Spencer Brown, who, as we know, carried the rock a lot in Birmingham, worn down the defense. And he's just, you know, ripping off seven, eight yard, uh, ripping off uh, plays that allow you to have a seven or eight yard average. Clearly, as we've seen as evidence through his career, he is just as good as he was as a freshman. And, and it's got to be, you know, in my mind, Joe, a credit to the UAB offensive line. I mean, uh, whether <laughs> just a, a ton of really talented guys on that t- team over the past few years, because not even him, but Jermaine Brown Jr. as well, 10, 10, uh, 10 carries for 114 yards and a touchdown. If you're running and 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 it's tough because on one hand as someone who covers FIU and has seen a lot of rushing yards allowed over the past few years past four or five years um you can understand that some of that is fundamentals and technique and you know not being in the right spots and I, I'd be interested interested to hear what Rick Stocks would have to say about that in terms of this game but it, at a certain point in time I think you really got to give credit to the guys up front who are building those holes especially for two backs you know what I mean so that was impressive as far as the middle Tennessee state side of things did not really uh, I mean a you end up in a 21 seven hole early on and then you're down 48 to seven at or 38 to seven at halftime that's tough especially again if you can run the football I don't care if it's high school college pro wherever it, it, it's gonna you know open up things and provide a lot of success and for middle Tennessee state they were not able to get that running game going you know Frank Pease at 10 carries 40 yards Darius Bracy nine for 33 Joe Irvin uh, the West Virginia, I believe Jordan was a former West Virginia uh, uh, transfer. Um, never mind. No, Martel Petway was from West Virginia. I, I'm forgetting where Jordan was. Nevertheless, seven carries for 54 yards. So not able to really spring things. That offensive inefficiency, especially against a team like UAB that is such a talented team defensively. Guys like Kendra Swoops. Jackson Bratton, the former Alabama, uh, the Alabama transfer. Nine tackles. He had a nice game as well. Yeah, I mean, it's going to take more than that to get the job done against UAB. So all in all, um, it's really interesting. I mean, we could talk about this a little bit later on, Joe. We've got a cluster of teams. I mean, Middle Tennessee, they've now lost two straight, but they were three and one. They're now three and three. You got UAB, that's three and two. They suffered a, a tough loss against Rice. You got a big cluster of teams that are around in between two and three and like three and two. That it's going to be really interesting to see who who can break out in the latter half of the year. 
Yeah, and I'm going to be interested to get Greg's take on this as well as as someone who's so close to the UTSA team. Um, it's going to be a race at the end here to see who separates themselves from the pack. You mentioned UAB being three and two in that rice loss. I, I don't think they really looked like themselves in many ways, and in particular in the way that they just absolutely controlled the ball like the entire game in this middle Tennessee game, they scored on, on seven drives out of 11 and really only started to slow up in the second half when, you know, in my opinion, they were clearly trying to, you know, take as much time as possible, which is an understandable strategy when you're up by 30. But, you know, and also it's worth mentioning in this game, we've talked about how well that play action serves them. um, When people have to pay attention every single play to what Dwayne McBride's doing to what Jermaine McBride or, or to what Jermaine Brown Jr. is doing rather. Um, so that leaves Trey Shopshire way open downfield. And on more than one occasion, him and Dylan Hopkins hooked up here. I think Shropshire finished with uh, six catches for 193 yards and a touchdown average catch for him, Eric, in this game, 32.2 yards. So it UAB looked like their their old selves in this rice game. And they came out, they they played angry, they played like they wanted to put, you know, the mistakes of those uh of those last couple losses in the rear view and and just go out and you know show that they're still themselves. No, most definitely. And you talked about Trey Shropshire. That's what you've talked about. I mean, you've been a fan of his for a while. And I've talked about in terms of the pass game. You know, if they can get those big plays downfield and just the run game opens up those things, it's a UAB team that's going to be hard to beat in my mind. Yeah, going to be a tough, uh, tough one for Charlotte this week, which we'll get into. Um, And and just real quick on the on the MTSU side, you know, Everybody thought like, oh, this is going to be a tough challenge for UAB when you look at how well that Middle Tennessee front seven is played. Um, obviously, that defensive line doesn't really do a whole lot. Jordan Ferguson had uh, four total tackles. Two of them were behind the line of scrimmage. Drew Francis uh, got in there a little bit, made some noise as uh, as the linebacker behind the line of scrimmage as well. But other than that, you know, anything concerning in the way that uh, Middle Tennessee defense just didn't really look the way that they have the last few weeks here concerning. No, because again, that's a really good UAB offensive line, you know, uh, guys like Sidney Wells, you know, for example, but in my mind, I I guess here's what I'll say. If middle Tennessee is going to have success, it's not necessarily about the, um, the counting numbers of the offensive line uh, of the defensive line. It's going to be of their ability to do things like they did last year, which is, Great bunch of turnovers. I, I don't think, and I may have used this phrase before. I think Middle Tennessee, their defense is a some of all parts defense. And I, I said that last year, and this is now without Greg Great and Reed Blankenship, right? You know, guys like Telzer Gross, Jay Ferg, and others are, are having to step up and be those guys. So in, in my mind, if again, it, it's not necessarily a defensive line thing for me, Joe. It's can they as a collective, you know, because even last year, I mean, yeah, Jordan Ferguson had a lot of counting numbers, 60 something tackles, uh, you know, was up there in tackles for loss when he's had seven or eight sacks. Those things would be nice. But if they can at least be a some of all some of all parts defense and create some turnovers, they'll be fine. I, I'm a little more concerned with the Middle Tennessee State offense because that seems to be a little bit inconsistent from week to week. Fair enough. Let's see how MTSU bounces back and how UAB uh, continues their march towards uh, what. I think they're hoping will be another shot at this USA title in the first year under Brian Vincent here. All right. For this next bit, we're going to dive into Western Kentucky and UTSA roadrunners get another victory over the Hilltoppers there. That's their third in as many meetings uh, to help review this latest chapter in that, uh, that matchup. We're going to bring in Greg Luca. He is a UTSA and sports writer for the San Antonio express news. You can find him on Twitter just at Greg Luca, G R E G L U C A. Greg cannot thank you enough for making time to come on the show today. Oh, absolutely. I'm glad to be here. We're glad to have you. And I know we're going to dive into some college football as well as uh, your latest run in with Haley Williams here in a second. But to get things uh, started, <laughs> what, what were your thoughts on uh, another close win for UTSA here? Yeah, it was a very interesting game from the perspective of this was the first time I think we've seen a team react to the success that UTSA has had passing the ball this season. They entered the week as the nation's leading passing offense, or at least tied for that. 
that role. And then this was the first time we saw somebody like Western Kentucky really back off and play some pretty deep safety looks and try to take away a lot of the passing success that UTSA has had. And so it was an important game for the Roadrunners to prove that they could get it done on the ground. And so we saw more than 200 rushing yards for the first time this season. Uh, Brendan Brady you know, came through in a pretty big way. And Traylon Smith, the Arkansas transfer, who's still working through an injury, came through with some important carries when they needed him. And so I think that UTSA's offense has proven that it's multidimensional and that, you know, they always say they're going to take what the defense gives them, like every quarterback and every coach does. But in, in this case, we've seen that they can execute that and that when they need to be a ground-based offense, they can do it. When they need to be a passing-based offense, they can do it. So I think that was my big takeaway from this game is proving that they're pretty multidimensional and that makes them a threat going forward. You mentioned, you know, the ground game and how that's uh, evolved this year. A big part of that has obviously been Brendan Brady. He's been such a solid piece for them this season. Uh, what do you think of the way that he's been playing this year, considering he decided to come back for the season kind of at the last second? Yeah, it's very interesting. He's his, through his career. He's always been just the sturdy, reliable player. And I think the first couple of weeks of this season, that was sort of the impression that we had of him, too. And just these last couple of games, it seems like he's taken a different kind of a step forward where he's been breaking some tackles and been a little bit more explosive. You know, you don't really expect that you're going to get that out of him. I think the understanding coming into the year was that. Traylon Smith is going to be the guy to provide those big plays. But as long as he's still slowed by that ankle injury, it's him and him and Brady are both capable of producing at about the same level. And I think as the season goes on, we'll see that Traylon Smith becomes that more explosive, more dynamic rusher who gets the bulk of the touches in the offense. But for the time being, Brady's, you know, good old reliable. And now with Sincere McCormick moved on from the program, he just got the opportunity to show it with a larger workload. Shifting gears a little bit to the the big guys up front, both on offense and defense. I know we're running into some depth issues uh, for the roadrunners in those areas, uh, you know, particularly on the defensive line. I think Trailer said uh, this past week that uh, they've got something like six guys out of the 11 they started with on uh, on the defensive line depth chart um, still available due to injuries there. Um, what's what's the latest there and how uh, how concerned are you for that part of uh, UTSA's team here? Yeah, for the most part, they actually got a more favorable report on that when we checked back in on Monday. After the game, he said six, and then Monday he came back and said it's looking more like nine guys who can go in that group. And so when it's a three-man front, you're pretty solid up there. Losing Brandon Madison for the season is huge. I think he's probably the most talented player from that group and was probably the most disruptive player from that from that defensive line group. But really, the, the much bigger issue has been on the offensive line where they've lost basically their five uh, top tackles, which is an, is crazy because, you know, they're coming into the year trying to replace Spencer Burford, who's now he's starting at guard for the 49ers. And so the left tackle spot was already going to be under the microscope. But, you know, whether it was Demetrius Allen, uh, who was injured now, or Ernesto Almaraz, who came into the year kind of banged up and is injured now. And uh, Payne Bear is a transfer from Northwestern, who they thought could come in here as a grad transfer and potentially start at the position right away. He's been out and then they lost Makai Hart for uh, for the season at this point he was an all-conference returner at right tackle and so now they've been starting a walk-on at right tackle Frankie Martinez and that looks like he's going to continue to hold down that role and you know I mean no disrespect to him because it's a hugely challenging thing for a walk-on to be thrown into that role but teams have attacked him and it's been it's been exploited pretty frequently by the teams that UTSA is going up against and it's it's changed how they have to play offense. They don't really dial up a lot of the deep passing for all the statistics they've put up. It's all short and intermediate stuff. They're actually throwing 20 plus yards down the field at a lower rate than they were previously. So they've had to adjust to the limitations of this offensive line with how quickly they forced Frank Harris to get the ball out of his hands. And I think that led to some of the struggles that we saw in the run game that we talked about earlier before it started to break through lately here. And at the left tackle, they started Ben Lee Tatafu. He's a basically Juco guy coming in here who had played guard and they had no expectations that he would be a tackle for this team. And now he's the starting left tackle and it's actually been kind of a revelation that, you know, as he's gotten more used to the role and started to learn some of the ins and outs of it has produced at a pretty high level. And I don't know how much you guys buy into the PFF grades, but if that's something you're into, he's, he's, you know, started pretty well at that, in that, in those metrics the last couple of weeks. And it's just making massive strides from one game to the next. So I think they've found a left tackle that they feel pretty good about, but then suddenly, you know, he missed part of the second and third quarters of this game with injury too. And now he's questionable for this week. So we're getting real close to freshman territory and the offensive tackle positions. If, if anything else goes wrong. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, if there's any further injuries at all on that group, how much worse it gets up there. Cause right now that's been a real struggle and they're just holding on until one, one or two of those guys might be able to come back at some point in the next couple of weeks. Over on special teams, Jarrett Sackett was the CUSA special teams player of the week. What do you think of the season he's having so far? 
Yeah, I think there was, a, you know, against Army, there was a critical kick that he missed that ended up sending the game to overtime. But other than that, he's just delivered when they need him to, and he's been solid. You know, last year, Hunter Duplessis was the kicker, and he, he did not have maybe some of the, the leg strength or the talent that Jared Sackett had before he, you know, initially transferred out of the UTSA program after a strong freshman year. But coming back here after a couple seasons, maybe with more limited activity, first at Arkansas and then at South Florida, to, for him to be able to pick up where he left off has been pretty impressive and pretty important for this team. And yeah, he's, he's, he's reliable. I don't think that there's many question marks around the kicker position at this point. Uh, all right. Last question from me before I, uh, last football question from me, I should say, before I turned over here. <laughs> um, at this point in the year, a lot of folks, you know, going into this season, we're picking UTSA to repeat as league champions. And, you know, through this, uh, through these, this first half of the season here, they've been playing pretty well, uh, four and two. And I'm curious your thoughts. What do you think is the strongest argument for and against UTSA repeating as league champions at this point? Yeah, I think the strongest argument for is just the fact that UAB already has a loss to Rice and UTSA has already beaten Western Kentucky. I think just the it's crazy that so early in the season you're looking around the league and that that part matters. But two games in, there's only two two and O teams, and so they are beyond the fact that they might have just been the strongest team to begin with. They've already got a leg up on some of their primary competition. And we've seen teams like Rice or North Texas kind of jump up this season and challenge people where they're not expected to. But generally, I think UTSA will be a significant favorite in most of their remaining games. And the big downside to their quest to repeat as conference champion is the one game where they won't be. And that's the fact that they have to play at UAB. Whereas if that was a home game, I think they'd probably feel a lot better and you go all the way back to the conference media day. Jeff Trailer was saying, I think UAB should have been picked to win the league because they have the home game against us. And when it's as tight as it is at the top, that's probably a, a big difference maker. And it was a reasonable point by him. I mean, you know, UTSA gets picked as the defending champion probably gets picked more often than not. But I think that those are the big factors to look for is that can UTSA go on the road and win that game? Then that would almost assure them a spot in that conference title game. Even if they lose that one, they should be able to win enough of these games to be in that conference championship position. We've seen the advantage that they have when they play in the Alamo Dome, especially last year for the championship game that they were able to get it up to 42,000 people, the amount of impact that that had. And even this week, you know, it's been a talking point around here locally. They only had 22,000 in there for the rematch against Western Kentucky, but still when when push came to shove in this game, they were able to force a couple of critical false starts because of that crowd noise. And so I think that if they're able to get that home field advantage by pushing through some of the easier matchups on the schedule unscathed, I think that that goes a long way in them potentially being able to repeat. I know we're all looking forward to seeing whether or not they fulfill that potential. But um, before we turn it over to Eric, just uh, just curious, you know, you've been pretty outspoken about being a, a big Paramore fan. We talk about music a lot on this show. Uh, happened to see on Twitter that you went and saw them live recently. Got to know, are they still good? They still got it live? Oh, yes, absolutely. It's an outstanding live show. If you haven't been, you're really missing out. It's so good that not only did I go, I mean, so with, you know, it was a 5 p.m. game here on Saturday. And I went over there up to Austin to catch it on Sunday. And I don't know if you guys are familiar with Austin City Limits, but it's a little bit of a journey to get to actually get in position. You end up parking like a mile and a half away, and then there's a little bit of a walk involved. And to do all that from a Saturday night game to a Sunday afternoon to then come back to San Antonio and be at football practice Monday morning, yeah, you better believe it was a good show. It's not the easiest turnaround, and I'll be there again next weekend. So uh, yeah, if you ever have the opportunity, if they're ever in your city, you got to check it out. Will do, for sure. <laughs> My bad, Joe. Didn't mean to uh, to jump the gun there on the Paramore talk. That was completely. I need to know about what Haley's been up to, Eric. <laughs> listen, I need to know. Listen, <laughs> Willie Taggart. Willie Taggart and I had our moment with Mystical, so gotta allow you and Craig to have your moment with Paramore. Right? That, that, is, <laughs> that is only fair. Uh, Greg, as we transition again, if you're just joining us, we are joined by Greg Luca. He is the UTSA beat writer for the San Antonio News Express. Um, or the Express News, excuse me, said that backwards. Greg, want to ask you this. Um, FIU is a team that historically, at least over the past you know half decade, really struggled against the run. It hasn't mattered what coaching staff, it hasn't mattered what scheme, it hasn't mattered what set of players. Can you kind of take us inside the UTSA run game a little bit? Obviously, they have Trillion Smith, the transfer from Arkansas, but Brendan Brady, who, of course, uh, you know, showed some promise the last time these two, these two teams faced off because, you know, it was 2018. That was before the Sincere McCormick era, if my memory is certainly correct. Uh, just talk about the dynamic mm-hmm. in the backfield with those two guys. Yeah, so Brendan Brady, like you mentioned, got started here as a freshman, and he was a 
very interesting guy to bring in because he's a local product from from Steel High School in nearby Cibolo, basically a suburb. And, uh, you know, there was a lot of excitement around what he would bring to this program. And I think we saw some flashes of that late in his freshman year. And there was questions about, you know, could he be the next guy to be the the primary? They build the offense around for the next four years. And then, of course, Sincere McCormick shows up and that changes everything because of the amount of success that he had and really the historic level of production that he was able to reach here. And so it was a very interesting dynamic coming down the stretch of last season because they have admitted that they built the roster and they handled the recruiting thinking that Sincere was going to come back. And it was a couple days before the bowl game that he just decided, you know what, I'm going to try to to enter the draft. And you know, depending on who you talk to and how things have played out, there's, you know, reason to be uh, questioning maybe whether that was the right call for him. And hopefully everything works out in the long run. I know he's working on it. He's dealing with an injury right now, but he ended up going undrafted. And I think seeing what happened there and then for Brendan, just kind of having his own desire to see what he could accomplish, it, it made a lot of sense for him to ultimately decide to come back. He didn't end up making that decision until after the spring football season had been completed, which, you know, for a guy who's been in the system that long, and who was nursing some injuries, it's probably for the best that he sort of waited on that opportunity and and probably got a little bit fresher. And I don't think he missed a beat with the offense. He knew what was going on by that point. And, you know, Traylon Smith was also a guy who who arrived late over the summer and I think probably saw the same thing of, of there's a lot of carries available now that Sincere McCormick is no longer in the fold here. And he was part of a basically there was three running backs who were getting pretty even carries at Arkansas. And then there was a Russian quarterback as well. So the opportunities to produce in the ground game were split a lot of different ways. And he said, coming into the year, I think I, you know, I want to put up a thousand yards and then I want to go to the league. And so it's been probably a tough deal for him. I wrote about this just today. We got to talk to him earlier today was to have to go through this injury when the vision was to come here and produce and use it as a springboard to the next level. And now you're having to push through this ankle issue. Uh, it's been very interesting to see how he sort of navigated that. And it'll be interesting to see what he's able to produce coming out of it. But in terms of how the ground game is structured, you know, they play kind of a spread style. And so you get a lot of different, you know, different kind of power runs and different counter runs. And I don't think it's anything crazy from, from what a lot of different programs are doing, but they have been running the same system under, under Jeff trailer for three years now. So they've got it pretty well refined and they know what they're doing aside from some of the offensive line injury issues that have maybe thrown a wrench in here and there. I had a chance to talk with Mike McIntyre earlier today during his weekly presser on Tuesdays. And one of the things that he noted, A, was just how veteran this UTSA team is in relation to FIE, which, of course, you know, you can just look up and down the roster and kind of, you know, tell the difference there. But in specificity, you know, I asked Coach McIntyre about, the size of the UTSA receivers, guys, again, like Tyke Ogle-Kellogg, uh, JT Clark, Josh Cephas and others. And I even Macman made a joke and said that, you know, Oscar Cardenas is, is you know, probably bigger than their, their entire team at FIU. Just talk about <laughs> the size matchups a little bit and uh, what that presents, especially for a young secondary in the Panthers have. Yeah, that's very interesting. Uh, you know, I don't always think about that size component, but it certainly is noteworthy. You, you know, Josh Cephas is kind of, uh, I think he comes in 6'3 or 6'4, and he's more of actually like the slot guy for them the way it worked out because they have three, you know, generally who would be wide out outside receivers with him and, and DeCorey and Clark and Zakari Franklin. And, you know, initially, first couple of years here, Zakari was the most productive of the group. And, that, you know, still they're all on even footing now, but Zakari is not necessarily that prototypical NFL style wide receiver. He, I think he checks in at, you know, six foot even or six one. And he just, he just, you know, the cliche stuff, he just kind of knows how to get open. And I think he does a really good job of kind of showing his hands late and locating the ball late. And I think it makes it very difficult for defenders who look like they're in good position against him to make plays on the ball. Uh, and, you know, we mentioned Cephas coming out of the slot. He's really focused on his run after the catch ability since they put him in that new role. And we've just seen him develop and get better and better at that to the point where he, they used him on punt return last week where they just think he's that dynamic in the open field now with how much he's made that a focus. And DeCorian Clark's been the most interesting one because if there's an NFL guy out of this group, it's probably him just with what he offers from a height, weight, speed circumstance and his leaping ability. They, you know, they have gotten pretty frequently being able to get close to the red zone and they'll throw the ball up to him in the corner of the end zone and have him go make a play on it. And that's a pretty reliable part of their offense where I know everybody hates the fade nowadays, but they, they feel like they can throw it to him and he'll be able to get it done. That's how they beat army in overtime. And now they got one against Western Kentucky just last week. So it's a very difficult matchup. And for Frank Harris to know the offense as well as he does, I think that's what really makes it all go because he has seen so many different defensive looks over the course of his career that now he understands where his one-on-one matchups are going to be, and he'll take any of them. If you're single cover any of those guys, he's just going to throw it without a second thought. So that's where it becomes very difficult to match up, not just from the the size 
you know, perspective, but can you cover those guys in general? Or is there going to be somebody who has one-on-one and he knows he can throw a fade or he can throw a slant or, you know, whatever the pattern may be that he trusts that guy to get open. I want to transition to the defensive side of the ball here a bit. I uh, heard this from both Jeff Trailer's presser and Mike McIntyre's presser. They both noted that there's a lot of similarities in what both defenses are trying to do. Both run a, a three-man front, obviously, you know, in the, in the modern 3-4, you're going to still see a lot of four-man rushes with that fourth guy coming in your lineup forever. But as far as defensive linemen, three-man front, four linebackers, kind of similar schemes. Uh, can you kind of elaborate on that as far as, you know, has Coach Trailer talk about that a little bit and maybe how that'll kind of help um, – Maybe not help, but I, I guess essentially the UTSA offense will have plenty of familiarity with what FIU trying to throw at them, considering that's a defense they see all week, every week uh, in practice. Yeah, I think it, no, I think outright it does help. It is a look that they're very familiar with, and they 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 don't do a lot of you know I don't know that anybody does. They don't do a lot of like good on good during the year, so you know it's not like they're up against it. Uh, on a day-to-day basis necessarily but obviously you know whether it's in the spring or in fall camp or just just being familiar with what's going on on the other side I think will help quite a bit and for UTSA's defense I think the question for this group right now is always around the pass rush I I feel like they have a lot of other things that are solid but in searching for some outside linebacker replacements for you know Clarence Hicks who was in the running for a defensive player of the year last year in the conference and Charles Wiley was another guy who had a shot at NFL camps it's been a real a process to try to find some guys who can fill that that outside linebacker role in the three four that like you talk about are bringing a lot of that pass rush acumen and you know they they put in uh, Trey Moore who's a local guy here he's in his sophomore season and they have uh, Jamori Robinson who is an option at that role and they actually took Adrian Taylor who really you know they list him at Sam linebacker but he really is more of a nickel and I think that's always been the case and might even be the case now but they have him rushing the passer in certain situations but. None of them have proven particularly potent, at least in my eyes. And I think that that's an area where they either need to scheme up some ways to get after the quarterback. And that's where you see, you know, I don't know how much FIU does this, but they mix in a decent amount of corner blitzes and safety blitzes and things like that to try to generate some pressure. And it's not as much as I think we saw a couple of years ago, but I think it's something that's still in their arsenal. And we'll see how creative they end up getting this game and through the year to try to create that pass rush where it's not happening necessarily naturally just from some one-on-one matchups. To end things here, Greg, as Joe talked about, we like to have a little bit of fun on this podcast. So we're going to end things on a fun note or kind of a, a quirky question. Greg, want to ask you this. Uh, this topic came up a little bit on social media. And I think Joe and I had a chance to talk about it a little bit. Where is the most unique place on the road? Uh, I believe it was Jared McDonald uh, from the Bowling Green Daily News who, who talked about this. Where's the most unique place on the road that you've ever had to hold a uh, post-game presser for the, our audience who may not be familiar? You know, usually there is a, a press room for the home team. But uh, if you're, you're a visitor in a, in a G5 state and especially in Conference USA, uh, you see, I, in my experience, I've let's see, in Southern Miss, I was inside of what I'm pretty sure was a, a, an equipment shed. Um, I think at one point I was inside of what appeared to be a closet. Uh, where's the, well, what's the most yep. unique place you think you've had a, a post-game presser? This is a great question. I'm glad you brought this up because you do, you do see a lot of different kinds and it's not always what you would expect. I mean, like, I remember even going back to, yeah, I went to school at the university of Florida and I got to cover a game at, at A&M. And even there, it was just like, we were in just this like tiny room with no air conditioning. And it's like, you know, I, they don't, nobody at any level puts any effort into this, but the farther down the chain you go, the, the less the infrastructure is going to be. I think you know, the most noteworthy one from this year so far was we went to Army and they, you know, the the media guys, they do their little walkthrough before the game and they decide what they want to do post game. And so the game ends and we head down to the field and it's quite a trek to get from from one side of the stadium on the other side where the locker room is. And we pull up to this room that they say that there's going to be interviews and they open the door and there is just piles and piles of gay stadium stuff, you know, gates and chairs and fencing and, you know, <laughs> whatever and and so there was a worker who was still loading more and more signage in there and they were like this is the media room and, and they were like no this is like our storage space and so it, that room was just out you know at that point you just end up standing in a hallway again so most of the ones that we've done in conference usa are just random hallways outside the locker room which you know i feel for the the people with the tv cameras and whoever want to post it on their youtube or whatever for me with the recorder i'm just like get me wherever i don't really care but <laughs> you know the, you end up in a lot of hallways and a lot of weird backdrops and the the fans are always on you know actually i'm surprised you know, 
you know, JJ Perez with the Inside Runner Sports 24-7 affiliate here, he always posts the videos of the interviews and you get on Twitter, the people are always like, where the hell are you guys? Like, why <laughs> is there not some kind of setup? And I'm just like, I don't have the answer for you, man. I don't care. Like, we'll do whatever. But it's, you get some interesting backdrops for sure. It's not always very, uh, very flattering. Uh, I'll give you two things here before I pass it back to you, Joe. <laughs> One, um, yes, very much as those of us who are just writing, no frills. Like, does not matter. We just need somewhere to get the audio and be good. Uh, Greg, my trip to New Mexico State, the the press box is is on a hill. I don't know if the exact, like the whole stadium is on a hill, but the side that the press box is on is on a hill. So uh, it was a trek to get down from the press box to the field to where they decide to do post game. And then I had to walk. And when I'm talking about a hill, Greg, I'm not saying like, you know, a, a little incline. It, it was when I got to the top, I was like, oh, oh uh, I'm out of shape. <laughs> you know, so that was Wait, that, that, more than UTEP. Have you been there? What's uh, more than, well, um, I have, we'll, we'll go to UTEP this year, but it's funny you mentioned that. I mean, you know, Las Cruces to El Paso is a 45 minute drive. So I guess it makes sense that that area. <laughs> right, right. So um, that, and I was going to say, you know, for your trip to FIU, very much a no frills press box, but uh, you'll be under the bleachers. Uh, more than likely, you'll be somewhere under the bleachers at, at FIU. So that shouldn't be too bad. That'll work. Yeah, I'll take it. Yeah, you know, some of the most important deals in business get done in uh, hallways and bathrooms and what have you. So thanks, uh, thanks, Greg, so much for hopping on and, and talking UTSA football with us. And uh, if you want to follow his coverage of the Roadrunners on Twitter, it's just at Greg Luca. And of course, check out his work in the San Antonio Express News. Greg, I hope you can come back on soon and uh, we'll, we'll bother Greg with more uh, Hot Topic band talk. Yeah, I'm all here to talk about Paramore anytime, any day. If you want to talk about UTSA while we're at it, we can do that too. <laughs> fantastic all right thanks so much and then at ricardo silva stadium in miami uconn beat fiu 33 to 12 um good day for um the huskies in that uh that that quarterback we were talking about who came out of st thomas aquinas there zion turner um pretty big day for him 14 completions on 19 attempts uh, 102 yards um it, you know just kind of got it done they definitely uh, made it so FIU was going to have to beat them, and they really didn't look equipped to do that, especially in the first half. Um, you know, furthermore, like turnovers kind of continue to be an issue for FIU as they're going to be with any young team, really. Uh, three turnovers there. Um, so obviously, Eric, you were there, so I want to hear your thoughts on this game. But in particular, any update on Tyrese Chambers? I know he got pretty banged up in this game. Uh, I'll start with Reese. No, uh, Mike McIntyre said that he would have to talk with the training staff, Dustin West, uh, this week. So FIU's weekly presser is Tuesdays. We are taping this on Monday for those of you listening. So we uh, should hopefully get an update tomorrow because that's going to be huge as they head into UTSA and quite frankly for the rest of the year and for Tyrese personally. You know, Reese is a really talented guy, so definitely hope he is healthy. As far as the game is concerned, Joe, this was the most encouraging loss for FIU in my mind. Now, here's why I say this. Uh, <laughs> when you lose 73 to zero or you lose 40, I can't remember what the Texas State score was, like 44 to 13 or 12, something like that. Most times, Joe, like that's just an inferior team. And especially in the case of 73 zero, that clearly was, you have one team that is just vastly better than the other. In this case, Joe, 33 to 12, while the score, you know, ends up being 21 points, and that was higher than the, the spread coming in. Joe, I don't know how much this game you had a chance to check out, if any. I know you were, you know, doing your own thing. But FIU, on their first two drives, drove inside the UConn 35. And they had three drives in the first half that they drove inside the UConn 35. They came away with zero points on each of those. That, that's the ball game right there. Instead of being down 20-0, and Mike McIntyre said it in postgame, he felt that if they at least come away with three on both those drives, then at least, you know, it, it's 20-6, to six or, and then maybe, you know, you get another score there, and, and it's you're not trying to have to play from behind. But to come away with nothing, that was disappointing. And you saw, Joe, hopefully this will make sense for you, and I think it makes sense for our audience. When I spoke with Mac following the Western Kentucky game, I was expecting him to be, you know, just brief and curt and not really want to talk. And not that he was happy about the loss, but, and again, he'll never say this, but his face and his comments almost 
in my mind, were indicative of, hey, we're going to take some lumps. You know, we're a young team. We're going to take some lumps. I'm proud of the way the guys fought. Uh, that's just a vastly better team. When he came in the press room after the UConn game, his face was just disappointed. His voice was disappointed because I think he knew that, especially giving a chance to build off of last week's win at New Mexico State, they had their chances in the first half, just couldn't build on that. Defensively, they give up 295 yards rushing. Devontae Houston had a big game before he ended up uh, leaving, could not leave on, on his own power in the third quarter, but Victor Rosa, the short yardage back had uh, two scores and Robert Burns, the Miami transfer had a score as well. Uh, I'd say that probably the, the most frustrating point in the game for FIU fans, a play that really summed up the ball game. Joe is down in the third quarter. You know, they're trying to FIU defense, trying to force a stop and they played well in, in the red zone, quite frankly, or in the, in the, on the goal line, two of those field goals from UConn in the second quarter, they had short fields and were able to hold the UConn to three, but Joe, there was a play there on the goal line. I want to say the four yard line. They run a double reverse. They run a, a double reverse down there, which is something we've seen a lot of, right? You know, the whole Philly special deal, uh, a double reverse down in the goal line with two quarterbacks in the game. So that already should be a key that, all right, we got two quarterbacks in the game. We haven't seen a second quarterback on the field with the starter all game. Something tricky is coming. The defense vent sniffs it out perfectly but just fails to make the tackle and Kale Millen threw a duck to Zion Turner in the back of the end zone and pick it 26, seven. That was really the ball game from there. So this FIU team is not really equipped to play from behind uh, any chance of them kind of combined from two scores. Isn't, isn't really going to happen as especially against an FBS team. So that really was the ball game. Yeah. You know, one thing that stuck out to me was uh, the yardage production for FIU in this game ended up with 409 total yards of offense. And if you don't follow FIU football too closely, it's, pretty rare to get more than 400 yards of production in the game. So, you know, other than kind of the goal line miscues, um, do you think there was some, you know, encouragement there for, for Mike McIntyre and company with the, just the amount of yardage they were able to put up? Oh yeah. I mean, encouragement again, I, I think the reason you got to be encouraged is when you, not to say that they're just starting from, you know, the, the ground floor, but it wasn't like I, what I'm saying, Joe is if you kind of come in, and dominated this game in 133-12 in decisive fashion, then you feel like, oh, damn, like, you know, UConn's rebuilding just like us, and we couldn't even hang on the field with them. They, they hung for the entire game. It just was the miscues and penalties. So when you talk about the offensive yardage, yeah, I think that those things were great, but, you know, they couldn't get seven. So, I, and Mac did even, he said these, these words verbatim in this postgame, we outgained him 409 to 402 and we still can't get to win. You know, that's something that's good that we got to do a better job at. So yeah, I think there was some encouragement, the, the offensive pr- production, but you know, you, you got to get those touchdowns, especially in a game like this. Absolutely. And it, it's also interesting how things kind of come full circle in college football as uh McIntyre, who was the head coach at Colorado once upon a time coached against uh, Jim Moore jr. Who was the head coach at UCLA at the same time. And of course, Colorado and UCLA, both pac 12 schools. Um, so I don't know any, did you get a chance to see any, any interaction between them two old conference foes once again, facing off? I didn't, I didn't Joe. Um, and I'll have to ask Mac this. Okay. I've never seen him since he's been at FIU, which is now what five games. I don't think he comes out pregame. Um, and that's been a change. Butch Davis was always out pregame, you know, for a good 30, 45 minutes. Uh, even week one at home, I want to say I saw him come out with like 15, 20 minutes left on the clock before kickoff. So maybe I guess I'm saying also say they could have had an exchange pregame under the tunnel that I didn't see. And I didn't stay to watch their postgame interaction. So. So Max just in his office pregame listening to his mixtape or. <laughs> no, I mean, I honestly, listen, I will have to I'll I'll have to reconfirm this after UTSA. I, I think he just hangs in the locker room because okay. the way without going to inside football, but this is a football podcast. So we'll do it. There were only four games last year. Um, the way FIU used to do things last year is they would come out, you know, in position groups. And this is, you know, for the most part, most teams do this mm-hmm. and they all come out in position groups. And then, you know, they'll go through the warmups, come back in and then go out as a team, uh, go through uh, a full set of drills and then go back out and then come back out for the game. FIU kind of staggers. Joe, and they come out much later than Butch Davis's group would. They come out with like 40-ish minutes on the clock, you know, and maybe that's because it's South Florida. You don't want to, you know, exhaust the heat or whatnot. Mm-hmm. So I think just because of that, like Matt just doesn't come out. Like he could be underneath the tunnel. I just haven't seen him. I, I've not actually seen him 
go through position to position. Hey, blah, blah, blah. Like Butch Davis would, but I'll, I'll come back and reconfirm that. I want Mac to hear this and be like, actually I'm out there. I'm just, you don't see me. I'm in a hoodie or something like that, you know? So. <laughs> gotcha. I just, I have an image in my head of him like rocking out to Pat Benatar or something to get himself. Pumped uh, up. Gotcha. <laughs> yeah. I, I will confirm that for you as well. Okay. How much does he love Pat Benatar? A healthy amount, I hope. Um, all right. Last one to wrap up from this slate. Let's talk about Louisiana Tech and UTEP. Uh, Louisiana Tech was not favored to win that game, but they did. And a huge part of it was because of they just started out so hot with Parker McNeil under center. Three touchdowns on their first three drives. Uh, 41 to 31 was the final score there. Really not a terrible day for UTEP, but it's hard to dig yourself out of a hole that deep when you start the game down 20 to three at the end of the first quarter. Yeah, Joe. So, I mean, when you take a look at this game, I feel like we've talked about, I know I've talked about this podcast, you and I have talked about it for the better part of the past few years since Gavin Harson has been the quarterback and they started having some success. Both of these things can be true. Gavin Hardison is a very talented quarterback and the recipe for UTEP success is not with him throwing the ball 45 times. Is that, that's fair. That, that both of us can be true. That's, that's a fair statement. No, that's absolutely a fair statement. That's not, <laughs> I mean, they're, they're not, they're not a West coast offense. So yeah, the reason I mentioned that is, and granted, Louisiana tech got up early, the two scores give credit to Parker McNeil. I think that's a huge development is against relatively even competition. You know, first conference game for Louisiana Tech. They got a quarterback who had some success. So keep an eye on that. But they just can't. If if he's going to throw the ball 50 times, you can almost say that they're going to be a handful of interceptions. And I think in my mind, that is that's really tough um, because as an offense, you can be enticed by the fact that, you know, again, Harson's super talented, strong arm. I just think they just don't have the playmakers on the outside. You've heard me talk about Justin, Car- Justin Garrett and Jacob Cowan. Jacob Cowan, again, having another great day for Arizona. This don't have those guys on the outside to play that way. And again, I get it. They were down early. But when you look at it, and especially in you juxtapose this game with last week's game, they've got to get the run game established early, eat up clock, and then allow Gavin Hardison to play that way, where the run game really dictates the pass as opposed to you know, him having to chuck the ball all all over the yard. So in my mind, that's kind of my big takeaway. I I guess another takeaway is defensively. When you entered this, this, this year, you probably didn't see UTEP allowing 41 points to Louisiana tech and sure two Ronald A. Watt fumbles or, 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 uh, excuse me. um, The, the one fumble from UTEP uh, Ronald A. Watt recovered two fumbles, got to keep the ball, you know, especially (laughs) running back to one and fumbling the ball, but when you provide Louisiana Tech with the chances that they had, that in my mind is just, I don't know. It's, it, it's, it, I, I don't want to sound like I'm taking away from Louisiana Tech's victory. And I also should eat the crow that deservingly show I need to because I came on this podcast last week and basically spit in Vegas's face and was like, yeah, I don't know what they're smoking. I, I don't see Louisiana Tech win this game. Give credit to Sonny Cumbie because his crew did. But it, I don't know. I guess I, I'm finding more disappointment with the performance of the UTEP defense, one that we thought was going to be one of the better defenses in G5 and just the formula for UTEP, which seems to be at this point, you know, maybe relying on Harrison a little more than, than they'd want to. Yeah. I mean, on the Louisiana tech front, I'm right there with you. I did not see why they should have been favored heading into this game, but they more than got it done in this one. And that Sunday Cumbie offense is uh, just coming together beautifully, especially the way that it did in this game. It needs to be more consistent. Obviously that's why they're two and three. Um, but Parker McNeil had it going. Uh, Smoke Harris had a great game. He caught two touchdowns. Um, so if they can play like that, more consistently than, you know, Sonny Cumbie, as we've talked about, is going to, you know, continue to build something special there in, in Ruston. Um, but for UTEP, yeah, I know what you mean. Like the disappointment from their offensive performance in this game definitely sticks out um, and their defensive performance for that matter. I mean, they allowed three touchdowns in that first quarter on those first three drives. But for me, it almost seems like UTEP's offense is like it should be like UAB light. Does that make sense? 
A thousand percent. Go ahead, Josh. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, you get that going early, and then that, in theory, should open up your playmakers down the field. And we know Gavin Hardison has the arm strength. He can huck it and just have those opportunities down for those quick strike balls to really put games out of reach for your opponent once you've already kind of established, you know, the clock control and, and got Ronald Awad and Deion Hankins, you know, uh, building on on what each other does in the backfield there to get like 300 yards of rushing offense. Well, 1,000% agree in terms of that is really what their offense should be. And maybe they don't have necessarily as much talent on the offensive line, but you can still play that way. Like, I still think they have enough. We saw it work for them the past two years, you know? So I I definitely think there's enough uh, for UTEP that they can play that way. But yeah, I mean, everything in my mind should should start with that run game. And then however much Breon Hayward not being there, that's certainly another thing to talk about. But yeah, I mean, 41 points, Louisiana Tech in my mind is a little bit disappointing. Yeah, I mean, Breon Hayward's a phenomenal football player. Don't get me wrong, but I don't think you can put, you know, the losses that they've had on one guy, especially when you had, you know, a guy like Prezamahule and and alongside also, you know, Jadrian Taylor, who... You know, praise on on his own was picked by a lot of people to be preseason, uh, you know, conference defensive player of the year. And I don't think that's going to happen based on his performance so far. But yeah, you know, UTEP three and four is like by their standards, that's not a terrible start. They definitely can still get back to bill eligibility, which is where we all thought, you know, they should end the season. But it's not exactly been what we what we wanted to see from from UTEP, especially in, you know, the losses to tech here and then in new mexico about three weeks ago all right with that let's dive into week seven in conference usa um another you know because it's a league play um it's <laughs> we're gonna have less and less games to review each week but it is a little bit more full slate this week and that of course is going to start on friday night on cbs sports network 8 p.m at ricardo silva stadium fiu hosting utsa uh utsa minus 32 is the line to open this game as of Monday. Um, you know, UTSA is definitely going to win. I don't know about that. Um, that line. I think that's a little generous. I think UTSA, um, they're a very good football team and I definitely think they're going to win this game handily. I think there's, there's, there's just been a few mistakes here and there. I think if Frank Harris is really locked in, which he, I don't think he even really needs to be for this game but if he you know just continues to do what he's done with uh with that trio receiver of uh clark sakari franklin and cephas then they're going to be fine and um also brendan brady i think he's he's had an interesting story and um i I talked to greg a little bit about it when we had him on but i think he's going to continue to be an impact guy for them especially once they get into the red zone short yard situations etc but I think utsa wins fiu keeps building um hopefully they don't get discouraged by going up against the defending champs here yeah, I know you said you felt that line was a little bit generous. I do not. And it's no slight on FIU as much as just as let's do the math here, right? FIU lost it because, you know, this is something that Vegas taken into account. FIU lost to Western Kentucky, 7-3-0 UTSA just beat Western Kentucky. Not saying it's going to be 90-0. I, I don't expect that. I, not that and UTSA's offense, they are dynamic in a different way than Western Kentucky because, you know, I was saying mm-hmm. There's a little more emphasis on the run game, but they have really talented receivers, as we've seen. Um, but I am expecting this one to be a, a large margin of victory for UTSA. So from the FIU side of things, and I'll be curious, I do plan on asking Mike McIntyre what his expectations are. Of course, it's gonna, the expectation is going to be to win, but what are the things he's kind of looking for um, going against a really veteran team? As cliche as it sounds, Joe, how do they compete? Here's why I say this. We've had multiple players on the record for FIU say that last year when they got down or ended up in in certain games, down in certain games, they would just quit. You know, the the, the heart wasn't there. Um, guys just down themselves, they would have quit. For a young team, and you guys have heard me talk about the amount of new players that are, are on this roster, the amount of underclassmen on this roster, there are going to be some tough moments. How do they respond if they're down 45 to 10, right? And they're facing another large margin of defeat. Because again, Joe, in the losses this year, the young guys who maybe for one reason or another didn't get a ton of playing time under Butch Davis or felt like 
there was no hope because it just was the same old veterans getting trotted out there. They've been fighting like the game is zero zero. And that's that's a, the honest God, genuine truth. Like I watch fourth quarters from the field. They have absolutely been playing. So that's something in my mind to keep an eye on. That's good to hear. I like to hear when when young guys uh, come into situations and just fight to the end. Um, cool. And I mentioned this with Greg a little bit when we had him on earlier in the show, but I'll reiterate it here. The reason I think it's a little generous for UTSA is mostly because they are very banged up. Um, not necessarily with guys like, you know, the big playmakers, but along their defensive front seven and on the offensive line. So if those guys who are coming in and you know, maybe they don't have as much experience, but uh, they're ready for the opportunity, if they play well, then maybe they'll cover that 32 point spread. We'll see. No, that's, right. that's actually a good call on your part. I did see that Makai Hart was ruled out for the rest of the year. So definitely good call on your part. Thank you. Thank you. Um, all right. 3.30 p.m. Eastern ESPN plus Middle Tennessee hosts Western Kentucky. Hundred miles of hate. Good old fashioned rivalry game. Love to see it. Uh, Western minus seven and a half heading into that game. Um, you know, I want to see what Middle Tennessee's defensive backs do in this game. You know, when we saw Middle Tennessee play UTSA and face that talented receiver group that they have, uh, it was too much for them to handle. And we saw that pretty much out the gate. Obviously, Western Kentucky also has a lot of talented receivers. If, you know, I think if they can come out and establish a lead early and get Austin Reed in a position where he's playing, you know, relaxed, I think the way that he has uh, at certain points this year against Austin P against FIU, um, I think sort of kind of in the first half against Western or against uh, Indiana, rather then I think they'll, they'll get this win. I, I, I think it, I think they'll win by 10. Let me just say that. Um, but that offensive line is really going to have to step up and, and help protect, uh, protect Reed against some of those, uh, those big pass rushers that middle Tennessee has, like we were talking about. Joe, if I come out and pick Western Kentucky, you know, what's going to happen, right? <laughs> uh, they're not going to win. The, the Rick Stockstill is going to have that Rick Stockstill game. Any Rick Stockstill team, they're oh, going to sure. have that game, right? Um, it, it's, uh, as you mentioned, a rivalry game, 100 miles of hate. It's in Floyd Stadium. So, you know, certainly something to keep an eye on. I am torn. The only reason I am torn is because we've seen Middle Tennessee rise to the occasion at times. They played UTSA relatively tough for a half, and then they just had some, you know, they weren't able to get some things going. Couldn't finish. That being said, I'm going to pick Western, but I would not be shocked from coming on this podcast next week. And we're talking about Rick Stock still and his team rising up again and finding a way to get a win that none of us all come. That is exactly how this season's gone for Middle Tennessee. In games where we think they have no shot, they ball out. In games where we think they're going to have a chance or win outright, they they just don't look like themselves, with the exception of that game against Tennessee State. Then also at 3.30 p.m. Eastern on Stadium, UAB hosting Charlotte. This one's going to get ugly, I think. UAB minus 23 and a half. The over-under is 62 points. Um, Dwayne McBride, if he keeps doing what he's doing, then he's going to you know, continue to be in that top 10 uh, in yards per carry, as well as uh, in just rushing yards in general. Um, and then, you know, the fact that they have this two headed back that they or this two headed rushing attack like they've had the last couple of years with McBride and Jermaine Brown Jr. Playing behind this offensive line, it's it's just something to see. And then when you combine that with Charlotte, who's one of uh, unfortunately one of the worst rush defenses I've personally seen at the FBS level, they need to not do that <laughs> in order to even have a prayer against UAB in this one, unfortunately. Joe, the Charlotte defense is, quite frankly, we can call them a work in progress and say all the things we want to say. They are not equipped at all to face this UAB offense, specifically the guys up front and the run game. It's going to come down to that. It's pretty simple. And especially given the fact of how proficient UAB is uh, as far as running the ball, Charlotte's offense and their big three, you know, Chris Reynolds and their receivers, they're not going to be on the field enough to keep up with UAB, keeping the Blazers. Did you listen to the podcast that our friend Hunter Bailey recently put out titled Pain? <laughs> um, was that podcast about football? No, I'm, I'm kidding. Hunter, that's <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was. Joke. It was about Charlotte football. <laughs> it's, an, it's an inside joke, Hunter, and I love you. You, you, you know it. I, I love you, buddy. Um, no, I did not hear that podcast. Yeah, that's that is a great representation of where Charlotte football is right now, unfortunately. And I hate to see it. 
but it's the truth. Um, which go check that out. Hunter does an amazing job on his football podcast, Absolutely. by the way. Um, Highway 49 is what it's called. Um, all right. 4 p.m. ESPN Plus, North Texas hosting Louisiana Tech. North Texas minus six and a half heading into this one. This one's going to be fascinating because we know that North Texas defense, uh, specifically their secondary, is really, really talented and they play really physical. And then you're going against this Louisiana Tech, Sonny Cumbie offense that throws the ball a lot. Um, so this is going to be a good test for guys like Smoke Harris and the rest of that Louisiana Tech um, receiver core. And if Parker McNeil can, you know, have the kind of game that he had against UTEP against this North Texas secondary, then that's going to be a tremendous achievement for the young man. Joe, I think it's nail on the head. This is going to be a good test because this is the type of game that North Texas would end up losing because they suffer somewhere defensively. KD Davis, we all know what he does. He's a super talented player on the tops in CUSA. Deshaun Gaddy, Quinn Whitlock, two really, really good CUSA defensive backs in my mind, which has always kind of been one of the things where I've been like, why are they having such issues, especially as the pass? Um, they have Zadori Jackson, the Utah State plant transfer. is not getting a ton of time, but he's there. Ridge Texada, Ridge Texada as well. That, in my mind, is going to make the difference. Uh, how well can those DBs play? And then, of course, you know, how can they generate pressure up front? And, Joe, when you think about it, we do have to mention this. I feel like we haven't talked about it in a while. Remember that North Texas, when we had Seth Luttrell on, I think they had just had like two more defensive linemen enter the transfer portal that day we recorded. They don't have the Murphy twins. You know, they lose Dion Noville. So certainly, it, even though we've kind of given the hard, the defense a hard time, they are losing or they did lose some pieces. But yeah, you nailed it. That's going to be the matchup in this game to look at. I am taking North Texas. I think they're going to run the football really well against the Louisiana Tech defense. I'm going to keep the Louisiana Tech offense apart for Parker McNeil off of the field, and that will get them to victory and get them to four and three in my mind, which not a bad spot, all things considered. You know, they'd have a dis- couple disappointing losses, but all things considered, not a bad spot for North Texas as they kind of come down to the, uh, the third quarter of the season. Not at all. This is a North Texas team that's much improved from last year. And to your point, if they come out with the run game that we've come to expect from them and just keep Louisiana Tech's offense off the field altogether, then I see no reason why they can't win this game. All right, 6 p.m. ESPN Plus rounding out the slate with FAU hosting Rice, FAU minus four. I'm going to go with an upset pick here and pick Rice. I really like what I've seen from them so far. Ari Broussard in that rushing game has played really, really well. Uh, It seems like FAU, the more the pressure kind of piles up, the more the mistakes tend to pile up. Uh, They're one and one in CUSA. Of course, you know, it's been a while since we've seen this FAU team take the field. They were on a bye week last week. Uh, If you forgot, they lost to North Texas in their last outing, 45 to 28. Again, I think it's going to be a, another tough day for the Owls here. Um, I think Rice gets the upset. And if Rice continues to kind of do what they've done in their past couple of wins, where they have the passing game going, in addition to being able to control the clock, then that's all they need to do. This is such a tough game for me because, you know, and I've made mention this in this podcast and previous podcasts, you got to kind of wash away, wipe away your preconceived ideas of what these teams were entering the year. You'd said on paper, Rice, FAU, I'd have said FAU victory, especially at home, Nikosi Perry, talented defense. It's not the way things have played out for FAU this year. Evan Anderson, latest report I saw is that he's on a treadmill, which is also like great and equal. It's equal parts great that he's back running on a treadmill, but equal parts, you know, fascinating in my mind because, Joe, I think you know how big Evan Anderson is. I'd love to see 6'4", 360, something of Evan Anderson on a treadmill, like just for the sheer side of it. That being said, uh, can he put cleats on and play football? That's going to be huge because Rice is going to try and run the football. And then they've gotten good quarterback play as well. I just think FAU secondary is too talented. Uh, I mean, if if Zion, if Zion Gilbert, let's try this again. <laughs> if TJ Young, uh, I mean, hey, if regular listeners, you can't fault me for the Zion Gilbert reference. I mean, he played in CUSA for a while. Uh, if TJ Young is healthy, he's been battling a neck injury. Uh, it's see how he can hold up. Can Smoke Mungin hold up? That front seven, can they hold up? Again, with Evan Anderson being out. I'm picking FAU, but again, this could be one that, we look at in a week and be like, wow, things have really kind of gone off the rails for FAU if they lose this game. For sure. I mean, um, let me find Evan Anderson's 
because we've barely seen him play. Yeah, we only saw him play against Charlotte. And when you saw like the preseason hype that was around this guy for good reason, it's so disappointing that we haven't gotten to see him yet. Obviously, it's not his fault. He's injured. Um, but I think that's kind of a bigger piece of why FAU is uh, not doing as well as we thought. Obviously, it's a team game. There's multiple reasons why they're they're underperforming so far. Um, but but that's one that's pretty clear. And to your point about being on an exercise bike, if it's any time, if it's anything like what's happened, the two or three times I've gotten on a Peloton, it's not pretty. <laughs> not, a, not a Peloton man, huh? No, dude. Okay, so those seats are just so weirdly constructed and I have, <laughs> I'm a large dude. I have a, a big, I have a big ass. <laughs> so it's there just we like, go. There we go. It's, That's just what I right, to say. it's just, it's just right up in there and it's just like not comfortable and just stuff starts going numb. You know what I mean? Like it's not, it's not good. I would, I don't, I don't hate exercising, <laughs> but my God, it's I yeah exercise bikes are not my favorite and I'm glad I never really had to make much use of one when I played. All right, Megan uh, the Stallion. Basically, what you're saying is, let's let's redo that the joke. I, I, I said Megan the Stallion. It's, it's, never mind. Uh, I'll skip it. <laughs> Fair enough. I, I don't want to sound like an old like an old out of touch man. Just delete that. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Fair enough. Um, all right. Go ahead. No, I I think we're done. All right. I think we are through the slate here. I think that's all the COSA uh, news and notes there for this week, but we'll be back next week with more. Uh, thanks again to uh, Greg for coming on and, and talking. Uh, follow him on the uh, San Antonio Express news uh, for football, as well as Paramore takes if you're into that. Um, and of course, follow us on Twitter at J-O-E-H-I-O underscore and at Eric C. Henry underscore. And then, of course, at Underdog Dynasty for more G5 football content every single day as we get closer to another championship season for COSA and the rest of the G5. Happy football watching, everybody. We'll talk to you soon. 